Amen. I was a young church planting pastor, and it was a Friday afternoon. I remember the date. It was April 19th, and I had just finished everything up, and I was about ready to walk out of my office, and there was a phone call. Uh, I picked up the phone, and it was my dad, and he uttered the name of my brother, Mike, and uh, that was about all that he could get out of his mouth. And um, he passed the phone to a, uh, a police officer. And the police officer said, I've just come to inform your dad that um, your brother has been shot. Uh, and we're not sure whether he will live or not. And in the suing minutes and moments, um, it became clear to us that Mike had been in a shooting, had been shot in the face, was um, on the ground for 20 minutes, and no one knew whether he had enough oxygen or not. And they were medevacing him from the community that I grew up in in northern Wisconsin to Minneapolis to a trauma unit. And we had no clue. It sounded like he had been oxygen depraved and that it was pretty hopeless. I find myself on an airplane later that Friday afternoon and you know, for those of you that have gone through just traumatic moments where it just seems like the world around you just doesn't get it. That it's just, it's just you're, you're living in this surreal thing where the world just seems like a fog. And I remember being on that, on that plane and I was writing uh, angry words to God uh, on a piece of paper. And in ministry, it had been really hard. Uh, some friends of mine, guy friend of mine, had had an affair and had left his kids and family in shambles. Somebody else had lost a, a, someone that they loved deeply. Someone had a broken job situation. And I just was yelling at God, saying, don't you do anything? Just that, don't you do anything, God. In the midst of walking uh, in the door of the hospital, and the doctors had decided to um, at least patch Mike up and we would see whether he um, would survive or not. Uh, I, I walked into the hospital and it, there's just grief all over the place. And there's family members and friends there in the uh, trauma unit. And one of my relatives comes up to me, my aunt. And um, I love her. Uh, she has cared for me in so many ways. But she came up to me and she said, Mark, um, this will be so good for you. Uh, the Bible says all things work together for good. And this will be so good for your ministry. I was miles away from being ready to hear somebody say something like that. Have you ever heard that phrase? Has somebody ever used that phrase in your Circumstances, all things work together for good. Familiar, isn't it? Just this kind of a thing that we pull out because we don't, maybe we don't know what else to say. And so there we go. We blurt it out, trying to give assurance to someone. And I will tell you, I would have traded my ministry and everything my whole life for my brother to walk out of that hospital. I would have given it all away. I'm not interested in being a more effective pastor to anyone right now. I want my brother to walk again. All things work together for good. 
you know, it seems like sometimes we take these, play, these scripture passages and we kind of think we know what they're supposed to be about and so we say them to each other and we hurt each other with them. Uh, we hurt ourselves. What, what does it mean? Does it mean that we're supposed to walk around and just kind of paste a smile on our face? In the midst of injustice and wrong and, 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 and life? You know, then there's the other side of it, too, really, isn't there, where people use it as some sort of a uh, affirmation of the uh, job promotion they got, right? I mean, your, your, your uh, colleague, you're together, a cubicle, sharing cubicles, and they're, they're packing everything up, and, and they get to walk out of this really, really difficult job situation, and they're folding everything up and they look at you and they smile and they say everything works together for good and you say well, my chopped liver and, and, and why not for me if all things work together for good and that's how we're defining it what about me or you know somebody pulls up with a brand new Escalade all things work together for good and it's sitting right out there on the curb <laughs> you know so what what does this mean well, I think it's valuable for us to look at this this morning. We're in this process with appreciative inquiry. And, and the focus is, what is the good that God is doing? What, what is it that we appreciate? And Yuli was helpful to get that list and say, yes, yes, yeah, that's, that's really good. But in the middle of it, on Friday night, uh, Craig said, he, he set us up for this appreciative inquiry. And he said, here's some things that are true. And one of them was this. What we focus on becomes our reality. What we focus on becomes our reality. So what is it that God wants us to focus on? When he actually puts this in this book, and he says, all things work together for the good to them that love God and to them who are called according to purpose. So tell me, God, what is this good about? What does it mean for you to be good? Because he says it. What does it actually mean? And I want to spend some time just kind of circling around this truth in, in Romans chapter 8. There's plenty more there than what I will ever say. So if you want to just go back to this in your small groups or just in your time with the Lord, there is, this is such a rich section of material. Uh, and I will just uh, mention a couple of those things that I hope will launch us into a week of thankfulness to God and uh, uh, this reception of this gift this morning with a deep appreciation of what it means for God to work good in our lives, all right? First thing I want us to notice here is that the character of good actually is described here. It says, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to open it up because this is kind of a large palette of information, but smartphone will work as well too. But right there in Romans 8, 28, I'm going to read that verse and then a couple verses after that. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Do you see what the good is here is? When he says all things work together for good, he's talking about conformity to the image of Jesus. 
All things work together so that we might actually be conformed, that we might actually look like Jesus someday. And it's more than just simply that. It says that we will actually be brothers and sisters. Do you see that? So that he might be just the, the, the firstborn among a parade of people that become brothers and sisters together. Do you see what God is, when God is saying good, he's not just talking about the promises for the life to come. You know, there's this kind of this slogan out there right now, wait for it, right? We use it more, right? Wait for it. And it's like, you know, the sin says, well, what does it mean for us to be Christians and waiting for life to come? I mean, that is the longest wait for it you could ever imagine. Wait for it. Wait for it. Is that it? No, it's not. He actually, right now, wants you to know that you are a sister of Jesus. That you are a brother of Jesus. That's what he wants. He seeks brothers and sisters. Considering who Christ is, this is unbelievable. That his intention for his life is to share his glory with me. Didn't any of you see the royal wedding yesterday? They're not sharing glory. I mean, there's the crowd and there are the, the people that get to walk into the, you know, with all of their sophisticated stuff on, but, but then there are these massive lines in this distance. I mean, even in the parade, everybody's just way back here because there's Prince Harry and what is Meghan now? Duchess Meghan. Yeah, and, 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 so, and so here they are. I mean, they're not even king or queen. And there is just a sense of who's in and who's out. Can you imagine, what would have happened if, in the middle of, you know, I saw, I saw a picture of the carriage that they were in after they were married, right? If suddenly Prince Harry would say, hey, you only, come on, get in here. This is a pretty good ride. And, 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 and wait till supper. You know, I mean, you would just say, crazy. Because there's so much pomp and circumstance and royalty and all that. Who would ever imagine they would ever invite anyone into the carriage? And Jesus is saying to you and to me, I want brothers and sisters. That's what my life is about. That you would, that you would be brothers and sisters. I mean, so oftentimes when people have power or position, they're just going to make sure that it's noted. You too. Do you remember when you were a senior in high school? You told those freshmen who they were, right? I mean, it's, ju it's just built in us, isn't it? And yet you, here you see something in Jesus that is completely the opposite of that thing person who has all the power and all the glory and wants you and me to experience it because we're family. Is that good? Now, now it, it actually says here to look just like Jesus. And you might say, I, I think I need to understand that a little bit more because I'm not necessarily feeling it right now. And I think our tendency is that we want Jesus to look like us. 
right? I mean, ha have you seen pictures of Jesus? What, what person from the Middle East ever looks like a Northern European young man, right? But we do that not just even in our pictures, but just kind of in the way we want him to be. What do we want him to be? So let's do something different. Let's find out who he is. And then let's figure out what that means for us. And, you know, we can just, we can just look at this and see. Jesus was the epitome of gentleness. Jesus was faithfulness to his death faithfulness. Jesus was compassion. Jesus was integrity. What you see is what you get. Jesus was a person who could utter words that were just right. <laughs> when healing was necessary, he would speak words of and step into the healing of the people around them. When rebuke was necessary, oh, his words were so good. Just like that. Just like that. Joy and contentment. This sense that everything's fine. No rush. No hurry. <laughs> Does that sound good to you? Any of that. Pick something on that list. Add to that list because there's much more to add. And God says, that's what he wants for you. In fact, he calls that, he calls that good. These are traits that you don't see advertised on television or internet. You can't buy them. Maybe that's why they're not advertised. Nobody's going to make any money on them. But these are the traits. These are the traits that God has for us. That we would look just like Jesus and he would regard us as brothers and sisters. I want to notice one more thing about this and then let's look a little bit at what it means to walk towards communion. And that is to notice the progressive nature of this. God does these things, it says here, through the course of our lives. Uh, it happens over time. And it happens in the midst of, it does happen in the midst of hardship and trials. We see this recitation of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. It's not that he imposes, prescribes, or plans those things. In fact, the text actually literally means alongside of all things God works good. Alongside the realities of life, there is God orchestrating something even in the midst of that. And it happens through life. And, and life isn't just one static thing. Life is what happened to you last Christmas, a year ago. Uh, life is what's going on right now. Life is what you're going to be faced with a week from now or a month from now. And alongside all of those pieces of it, he is always orchestrating maturity and growth and development. We heard this, those of us that were there on Friday night, uh, in regards to uh, uh, what God does over time. Dan uh, referenced for us on Friday night uh, that he actually knew what was going on in the world in 1961. I mean, that is like old, isn't it? 
But you know what he also said? He also said the things we were looking at, we were looking at a passage, I think, in Philippians. He was saying, you know what? All of those things that God says he does in, my, in lives, I can be, I, I, I am a witness to that. That actually God over time shapes those things. We heard Yuli say it actually about Ryan and Zoe and Hesed and Brittany. Did you, did you see what she said? You folks have grown so much in the last two years. Why is that a surprise? They're trying to follow after Jesus. And what does God do over time? Even with eighth graders over the course of time, he's up to something. To allow them to be conformed to the image of Christ. And he is up to that in you right now, in the midst of your circumstances right now. In the midst of what is going to happen to you that you don't know about yet, but he does, and he's already got plans alongside of it to work good. Because that's what he does. He works alongside. I want to just, if you, have, uh, if, if you have a capacity to be able to turn to Exodus chapter 23, I just want to show you that God just shows, uh, re, uh, reminds us of this. This is this really cool thing. I know this is a tangent, but not quite. I'll get back to it. In, Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God is talking about his plans for the nation Israel. And he's going to care for them and bring them along. And in the middle of everything that's going on, he, he just stops for a minute and he says, now let me tell you how I'm going to do this. And in Exodus 27, I'm, I'm sorry, in Exodus uh, 23, beginning in verse 27, he says this, I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. And he's like, wow, God, you are so cool. I'm so looking for you. You're just going to go in there and just make an easy path for me. This is just going to be like a cakewalk. And then it says this, but I will not drive them out from before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to possess the land. That's how God does it. He does it little by little because his desire is that you will increase enough to possess the land that he's got for you. Oh, I would want it done right now. And God says, no, I'm going to do something better than that. I'm going to create growth and strength in you. I'm going to cause you to grow up into Christ like this little by little. That means there's something little but significant he's doing right now. Right now. In you and in us as a congregation. I want to just say a couple things about this. Let's not wait till Pastor Peter gets back. Because God's at work right now. Alongside of everything, God works, and he's working right now. And there are actually things that he's doing right now that I'm not sure he would do. Plan to do with Peter being in this room with us right now. In fact, I think he's building strength in this congregation. I saw it this weekend. I, yeah, it's true, isn't it? That God is doing those things with us right now. Look around the room on Friday night, and I thought, this is amazing. 
Look at these gifted people that God has given us as a congregation stepping up and leading us and guiding us and moving us forward. There is a strength here that I hadn't noticed before now. Little by little, God works and don't wait until Pastor Peter gets back. I just can't wait for the surprise on his face. That's what God does. There's one other piece of this, and that is, don't you dare fade away. Don't you dare walk away because it's getting tough now. As a lead pastor at the church I was at in, in Kansas City, we would have meetings, new members meetings. I believe that we have them here too. And what, part, of the, part of the time when we would get together with people that are coming in, and you know when someone comes new to a church, you know how it is, it's kind of this excitement. Wow, this is really cool. New people. Wow, I love them all. Everything is just so, so great. Not like my old church. And we would say to them, first of all, you need to know this. This place is filled with sinners. It is. And the second place, God uses places filled with sinners to grow us up. Oh, by the way, did you leave where you went before because it was uncomfortable? How do you know that the lesson plan that Jesus had for you wasn't just beginning in that place? How do you know that? In fact, we would say to people that would come, I, I, I want you to think long and hard about this possibility. Maybe God wants you to leave Hillcrest and go back to where you were. Because that's where God works in the midst of the difficulty. Now, I'm not suggesting that's even an issue, but if you're normal, it is. Right? This is really tough right now. The reality is, is his lesson plan for us is this. <laughs> right here. Because he wants to build in us joy and contentment and confidence and perseverance and compassion and all of those things that make us look just like Jesus right now. And then there's one other element of this, and that is that the expression of Christ in the world isn't you. I know you wish it were. The expression of Christ in the world is us. It's called the body of Christ. Right? It is us. So let's work on us. Let's let God work in us. Rather than this very, I think, American sense of, it's all about me. This individualism and everything we read in Scripture, we read with his eye naturally to say, he's talking to me right now. And the reality is, is he's talking to us. So let's, let's ask him to move us forward. One, one more thing that I want to note here, and it's just the whole tone of this passage. I don't know if you picked it up or not. Last week we talked about God wanting us to know our identity, right? And that we are his beloved. And that our, our deepest identity is not what we do, but it's who we belong to. And you get this sense in this passage. Go back and read it over and over again. And you get the sense that God says, I want you to live with no sense of shame, with no sense of guilt, with no sense of fear. Verses 31 through 35. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? 
it is God who justifies, then who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus died more than that. He was raised to life and he's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? In the midst of all of this, no guilt, no shame, no fear. The context for what God is going to do alongside of all things he works good is because we're his beloved and we didn't do one thing, he did it all. In fact, scholars look at this text and they will say, you know what the all things is referring to? Well, it's the difficulties, but the all things, scholars say, also have to do with the mess we've made. With the, with the foolish choices we've made that have actually hurt the people near us and around us and hurt ourselves. Even that stuff that we don't even dare name out loud alongside of all things. <laughs> I'm working good so that as brothers and sisters, you might know that relationship. And you might have growing in you this character. Remember the story, episode, where these men brought a woman before Jesus who had been caught in adultery. Imagine that. They only found her. Yeah, she was the only one uh, caught in adultery, but, but there was just one of them. And so, and so, and so they bring her to Jesus, and, and it's a little bit of a test. You can, now, you're the compassionate one, and yet, and yet you're talking about holiness. So what are you going to do about this one, Jesus? And so they bring Jesus, and they explain the situation, and she's, she's standing there. And you know the story. Jesus gets down. And he just kind of starts drawing in the, in the, uh, in the dirt. Nobody knows really what he drew. But he, he stood up to say, okay, great. Whoever doesn't have any sin, you just go ahead and you start, you start the stoning. And it says that the older, wiser, humble, realist, they just started to walk away. And eventually, everybody was gone except Jesus and this woman. And he asks this profound question. He says, woman, where are your accusers? The irony of that, the only person who could, condone, could, could accuse her was still standing right there. Where's your accuser? Where are your accusers? The only one who could still accuse, the only one who could accuse was standing right there. And he had already made a decision. And instead of condemning her, he would die for her. That's what he would do. The one who could condemn you has decided instead to die for you. And then look at what he says to the woman. He says, go and sin no more. Now my guess is, is you messed that one up. Because you thought, oh, that means I better be good again. How can that be what it means? Jesus is just, is just pouring out grace here, and then he does ungrace? This isn't go and sin no more because you better. This is go and sin no more because you can. 
you can actually live that life. I mean, the residual uh, stuff is still going to be there. And Jesus knows not only what we've done in the past, what we've done now, but he knows that residual impact of that part of us. Yet in the middle of it, he says, just go and experience the freedom of knowing that you are my beloved. And live it. And then watch what the Spirit does. And you, as you just decide to say yes, as human as you are, and you just say, Jesus, I'm following you best I can by your grace and through your power. Go and sin no more. Not because you better, but because you can. Spirit of the living God lives in us, and we do it together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that this is true um, and that you are God and that you have decided to treat us as brothers and sisters and you do that with grace unfathomable. Lord, pray, prepare our hearts now, Lord, to walk into this time of receiving this gift from you, Lord, with just a deep sense of gratitude that you who know us best and you the only one who could condemn has decided instead to die for us, we pray. In Jesus' name.